Banking institutions have been battling cyber attacks from a variety of angles, including distributed denial of service attacks waged by hacktivists. Federal regulators have reminded U.S. institutions they are required to report cyber activity. But how? What steps are institutions expected to take to ensure they are adequately tracking these events and taking appropriate steps to notify consumers, regulators, and other institutions of the cyber activity they're seeing and experiencing? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group, and I'm here today with Doug Johnson of the American Bankers Association, who's joined me to review obligations all banking institutions have to ensure they are sufficiently tracking, reporting, and sharing information with their peers about DDoS attacks and other cyber threats. Doug, the ABA, along with the FSISAC, has been working with U.S. banking institutions to address the recent upticks in cyber attacks aimed at disrupting online banking service and or stealing account information to commit fraud. Can you give us a brief overview of the current cyber landscape and the cybersecurity concerns banking institutions are most focused on right now? Sure, Tracy. I'd be happy to. First, I think that you're correct in portraying the majority of these cyber attacks as, as being disruptions of systems rather than intrusions of systems. But that doesn't mean that disruptions and intrusions can't happen at the same time. And I think that's that's one thing that, that we as banking companies are, are very, very mindful of is the fact that these attacks are becoming increasingly sophisticated. And with their sophistication, they can take various different types of attack vectors. They can attempt to disrupt attacks as well as they can attempt to essentially intrude on systems. And so we need to be aware of both. And we need to be aware that the, the volume of attacks is going to be increasing as well as we've seen over the course of the last year. So the attacks will take multiple fronts. They will try to disrupt as well as intrude upon systems on occasion, doing both at the same time. And I think that financial institutions are just aware that this is an environment that is not going to, to be changing and, in fact, is going to be escalating. And so we just have to be prepared for that. Now, Doug, in late December, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency reminded banking institutions that they are required to track and report DDoS and other cyber attack activity. What exactly are banking institutions reporting responsibilities? Well, Tracy, there are, there are a variety of, of different responsibilities. I, I think that some of the responsibilities do relate to the reporting of suspicious activity through suspicious activity reports. Um, some of them involve talking specifically to the field examination functions. Your primary federal regulators obviously have a very important role here, and, and the specific examiners that examine your institution are, are going to be very interested in whether or not you are being attacked as a company and, and what you're doing, essentially, to uh, respond to that attack. Some institutions, because they're publicly traded, also have reporting responsibilities associated with uh, securities filings and, and the like. Um, so there are a variety of different manners in which institutions are, are required to track and report these. The OCC indicated in, in their most recent guidance particularly is, is that institutions should really have appropriate risk management programs to identify and, and appropriately consider these threats. And I think that's the really the basis for, for any of this uh, tracking and reporting is to, to really ensure that you as an institution have appropriate and dynamic risk management function that really allows you to, to see these attacks when they occur and also have your institution plugged into the various information sharing mechanisms that will allow you to know that these attacks are occurring in other institutions 
and specifically what those institutions are, are experiencing. So that's really how you have as a basis your ability to, to track and report. So then, Doug, how should this cyber activity be reported and filed? Well, I think that, again, you do have suspicious activity reporting requirements. Those requirements essentially require your institution to report a computer disruption and intrusion in some cases. It doesn't necessarily need to have a loss associated with it. It can just be an attack against a critical system of the institution. And so the institution has to make some determination as to whether or not there is some level of criticality to the system that has been essentially attempted to be disrupted. And I think online banking platforms obviously are extremely important, particularly banking uh, retail consumers. And so that would be one of those systems which would be very important to report on a suspicious activity report. But again, I think that one thing that's, that's also very important to do is to go and have that conversation with your primary federal regulator at the field level as an institution, similar to what you would do for generalized security breach reporting. And we've always recommended that institutions, you know, talk to their examiner in charge and find out from their examiner in charge uh, what types of reporting they would like to see from the institution associated with security breaches generally when information is compromised all the way down to mismailed account statements and things of that nature because every field office is different. So I think that since that is your primary contact as a financial institution, that's where you really should start You know, as an institution is to have that conversation with your examiner in charge because they're the ones that are going to be contacting you to the extent that, that they find out that you've been the victim of a denial of service or other attack uh, to the extent you haven't reported it. So I think that's where you really should start as an institution. Now, Doug, since the beginning of this year, of 2013, several leading banking institutions, including Citigroup, Bank of America, and J.P. Morgan Chase, have included information about cyber attacks they've suffered in their quarterly and annual reports that they've filed with the SEC. Are these cyber attacks expected to be included in 10-Ks and or other SEC filings that institutions submit? Yes, Tracy. As a matter of fact, they are. The SEC, back in October of 2011, really clarified existing rules and guidance as, as it related to what an institution that is publicly traded has in terms of responsibility for uh, reporting these types of events. It all really boils down to materiality. Um, essentially, what the SEC has done is said that while um, cyber events are not specifically noted in existing guidance, you know, to the extent that a, a cybersecurity risk or incident has a material impact on the institution, that the institution is required to, to disclose that to the SEC through public reporting. And so I think that that's really what the, the basis of the uh, SEC guidance is. And they've also stressed that this particular disclosure should really be tailored to to what the company's individual facts and circumstances were, and that the institution should avoid you know, boilerplate language associated with the attack, but they should essentially describe what the attack essentially looked like, what the materiality was, um, what the company has done to address those risks, and what the costs and consequences of the company would be, and what the occurrence and impact of any actual or threatened cybersecurity events to the company would uh, be covered by insurance or otherwise. That's basically going back to existing guidance that the SEC has always had in place and clarifying that it also does apply to cybersecurity incidents. Now, Doug, you've talked 
about suspicious activity reporting, but under what circumstances should banking institutions include some of this cyber activity in their SARS reporting? Yes, Tracy, as, as we've discussed briefly, the computer intrusion doesn't necessarily have to result in a specific fraud event in order for it to be reported on a suspicious activity report. Computer intrusions are, are defined as gaining access to a system, but they're also defined as damage, any ability to disable or otherwise affect a critical system of the institution. So uh, denial of service attacks, particularly the ones which we just experienced in, in over the last six plus months, uh, because they were very substantial in terms of the volume of activity, which was really attempting to disrupt these individual institutions, I think that's clearly something which would fall within a SAR reporting guideline. And then what if a banking institution is unsure, Doug, of whether or not fraud has been committed or a breach of information has actually resulted from an attack? Well, again, the threshold for reporting the intrusion is not a financial loss, it's the intrusion it itself. So I think that, that that's the important piece. But Again, um, it's also hard to know the motivations of the perpetrators. It's also hard to know to the extent that a disruption has occurred. And we talked about in a previous question the fact that disruptions and intrusions can occur at the same time. And so because of that, um, don't assume that you know the motivations of the perpetrator and also realize that your obligation is, is not really hinging upon the fact that you had a financial loss. So I think erring on the side of reporting would be a, an advisable strategy. Now, from the banking institute, perspective, I could see where this poses quite a few challenges when it comes to tracking cyber activity. They're expected to differentiate between a DDoS attack, for instance, from an online outage that could be linked to something that's less nefarious. It could just be some type of disruption in service. Should they be reporting all of this, even if they are unsure of the reason behind it? Well, I think that, again, when you're talking about motivations of the perpetrators, um, it's, it's always hard to discern exactly you know, why a criminal or other perpetrator does what they do. I think that the one way to differentiate an, an attack um, is, is clearly on the basis of volume, as, as we've discussed previously. But I think that another way to, to really know where the attack vectors are coming from, for instance, is to really uh, take advantage of the information sharing uh, mechanisms that are available to our sector. And of course, those first and foremost start with the with the FSISAC, but they also go to peer-to-peer -peer sharing. There was a substantial amount of peer-to-peer of -peer sharing of threat information during the denial of service attacks. And I think that that was an extremely important component of our ability to withstand and recover, you know, from those particular attacks. And so I think that we have the ability to really, on a peer-to-peer -peer basis and system-wide, really understand a, a lot about the attacks, which help us be able to differentiate the various attacks and know when a specific DDoS attack could turn into something else or whether it is something that is actually less nefarious, like you indicate, and something that might not need to be reported. And so, Doug, would you say that it's pretty easy for institutions institutions based on the technology that they have in place and some of the information sharing that they've been doing to differentiate between just something that may have been an outage that would have occurred without an attack versus something that is actually attacking them to take a network down. Well, I'd like to turn the question around, Tracy, if you wouldn't mind, and say that it would be near impossible for the institution to do that in a vacuum. And so it's really 
the ability of the institution to avail itself of the various information sharing mechanisms that are out there to really understand the nature of the threat and know particularly how to respond to it and what to report about it. And then what would you say about reporting some of this information to the public? Should some of the reporting that banking institutions do also include notifications? Well, of course, there's a variety of pieces of the public, if you will. I think clearly each institution is going to make its own decisions regarding broader public notification outside of the institution's own customer base. Uh, but uh, regarding discussions with customers, it's always important to ensure the customers know what is happening uh, to the institution. In the case of, of the many DDoS attacks that occurred, the slowdowns did not involve any breach in customer data, and it's important for customers to know that. And it's also important for customers to know that other delivery channels are, uh, may be available. And that doesn't mean ATM or the branch. It also means that mobile banking may be available, even though um, Internet banking might not be. But I think the, the other piece of this is, from the standpoint of public notification, is that this could be called a teachable moment for customers as well, because it allows the institution to communicate with their customers about what they can do to protect themselves and their devices. So you can go back to all your basic blocking and tackling in terms of the kinds of computer hygiene uh, education that you provide your customers generally about antiviral software and about um, what your browser settings should be and about what phishing is and about strong passwords and things of that nature, which uh, you perpetually have to remind your customers of as part of uh, the overall security uh, that you're trying to create for your institution as well as your customers. What types of things should institutions consider when it comes to reporting a breach to state's attorneys general? Of course, uh, state reporting requirements can differ somewhat from, from state to state, but as they were enacted in the various states, they, they do have some consistent characteristics, uh, and most of them do center on the compromise of sensitive, personally identifiable information and, and reporting of the breach to those customers that, that were breached. And so they're pretty narrow from the standpoint of, of reporting as opposed to reporting, for instance, denial of service attacks to the uh, state's attorney general just in, in general, if you will. Some states uh, do require specific reporting to a state privacy or, or other office, and that office may or may not be attached to the uh, state attorney general's office. But I think at the end of the day, it's important for an institution to really understand uh, and be aware of the specific state reporting requirements, obviously, in those states that they have a footprint in because they are going to have some difference, but the vast majority of them do have breach reporting requirements. Doug, you've talked about information sharing and some of the communications that banking institutions may want to share with their customers and members, but does the ABA or the FSISAC have any advice about the venues that banking institutions may want to pursue when it comes to communicating directly with customers and members? Well, I think that you know, the venues are, are many, obviously, but there's always a, a basic concern, I think, or balance that needs to be reached in communication between appropriate public communication and potentially, frankly, providing you know, too much information to the perpetrators about how attacks uh, might be specifically affecting institution or what protections measures are proving to be effective or not. And I think that sometimes, you know, we may have to err on the, the side of not disclosing information publicly when being attacked so that it does not give the originators of the attack information that might be helpful to them. I think at the, at the same time, there is value in uh, and great value, frankly, in being able to ensure that, that not only your public, your customers know what the nature of the attack is and how you're responding to it and, and how they themselves uh, can respond to it, but also 
also because these attacks are well known a lot of times in the media, um, sometimes it is advisable for the institution to take some kind of broader media approach to uh, ensure that the public is, is aware of the fact that the institution is responding effectively to a particular attack. So I think that every attack is different and every institution's approach is going to be different and the mechanisms they take to uh, discuss the, the breach with their customers and the, the public generally is going to be different because of that. But I, I think that at the end of the day, what's what's most important is for every stakeholder within the institution to really have the appropriate level of information to know what the status of the institution is and, and how they themselves can avail themselves of services from the institution to the extent they're a customer. So when it comes to communications with the media, what concerns do regulators and banking bodies such as the ABA and the FSISAC have about sharing too much information, too much information with the public that could be used against some of these banking institutions? It does get back, Tracy, to uh, ensuring that we're, we're not indicating to the perpetrators portions of their attack which may be more successful than other portions of their attack, or that there are certain types of security measures that the institution is taking that have been successful or not, because obviously that gives the perpetrators clues as to what essentially might be an advisable attack strategy for them in the future. And so I think that's first and foremost what we become concerned about, and it's the balance that we need to, again, achieve between ensuring that the media and all other public bodies have the information which is appropriate regarding the, the attack, um, at the same time not giving the information to perpetrators that should not have that information about uh, what's successful or not. Now, Doug, you also have touched on information sharing that's taking place between banking institutions and among law enforcement. How is this and how should it be handled? Is this being facilitated by the FSISAC, for instance, or is some of this taking place just between banking institutions themselves? Well, as, as you know, Tracy, the FSISAC has been around uh, since 1999, and some institutions, particularly the larger institutions that were the subject of the most recent denial of service attacks, have been part of that community for many years. And so really, it's a combination of those communities. It's a combination of the FSISAC being able to really be the aggregator and the platform by which institutions can share information, but also because of the trusted network that the FSISAC has built over time to the extent that there's a need for peer-to-peer -peer sharing, that that essentially occurs because of the fact that these individuals in these in individual institutions know each other. And I think that the primary example of that uh, would be some of the early iterations of the cyberfighter paste bin notices. If you recall, you know, those notices essentially indicated um, not only which institutions would be attacked, but which day they were going to be attacked on. And so essentially an institution that was attacked on Tuesday would be able to talk to an institution that was going to be able to be attacked on or, or indicated to be attacked on Wednesday, you know, about the threat. And, and so I think that while the threat may be different from institution to institution because systems are different, I think that peer-to-peer -peer information sharing is, is very important. But also the trusted network, I think, allows you not just to share information, but also resources. I'm actually very proud of the fact that there uh, were instances of institutions not just telling other institutions, you know, what protection measures they were using and were successful, but also providing human resources to other institutions to, to help them withstand the attack. And so I think that really demonstrates once again that in our sector particularly, we view cybersecurity as, as a cooperative effort and not a competitive effort. And, and it's a, a, an effort I'm, I'm rather proud of, frankly. And then, Doug, before we close, what final thoughts or considerations related to cyber activity reporting 
would you like to share with our audience? While institutions never wish to be attacked, I think that the most recent attacks, most of them being disruptions as opposed to intrusions, gave us the ability to really test our, our cyber attack responses. And that response obviously includes the manner in which we uh, report cyber activity to, to anybody, um, either governmental or otherwise. And, and I think that we're stronger as a sector because of this testing. I think we'll do an even better job of reporting cyber activity in the future on the on the basis of, of what we've been experiencing recently. And, you know, we'll continue to evolve both our protection measures as, as well as our reporting procedures, you know, as the threats change. And as you and I both know, they're going to change. Doug, I want to thank you again for your time. Sure, Tracy. Happy to do it. Again, we've just heard from Doug Johnson of the ABA. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.